The reason why we call some of our events civic hacks is because we're trying to take a look at an existing system or process and flip it on its head in order to think about how we can address it more equitably. Welcome to the Be Change podcast. We're your hosts, Marcy Goldstein-Gell. And I'm Warren Goldstein-Gell. This podcast is for leaders and emerging leaders who care about social change and how to make a great difference in the world. The podcast explores strategies, tools, and stories to help you strengthen your social change and nonprofit leadership skills. Alensa, welcome to the Be Change podcast. Thank you for having me. Welcome, Alensa. You are an urban planner, researcher, and an artist with a background in community organizing and youth work. In 2014, you founded Powerful Pathways, Mm -hmm. which facilitates community planning processes and community development projects using art, design thinking, and creative media as a central approach. In one interview, you call the activities, quote-unquote, civic hacks, because they're focused on disrupting and innovating for social change. Okay, Mm -hmm. tell us more about that. Sure. So the reason why we call some of our events civic hacks is because we're trying to take a look at an existing system or process and flip it on its head in order to think about how we can address it more equitably. Perfect example of that is I did a talk some time ago where we were looking at streetscapes, particularly the way streets are designed, but also the way streetlights engage pedestrians. And what I mean by that is there's this concept called environmental psychology, which really has to deal with the idea that the way systems and the way uh, technology operates and how our environments work have an influence on our behavior. And so one thing that we were looking at is how in certain neighborhoods, you only have about 10 seconds, for example, to cross the street versus in other neighborhoods, you might have 45 seconds. And does that little nuance of the constant rush of having to get from point A to point B then have an impact on your mood? And so when thinking about that, we also started looking at intersections. And so the disruptive component that we're playing around with is rather than having horizontal crosswalks, why don't we have diagonal crosswalks? Mm -hmm. So that way, if a person's trying to get from one point to another point across the street, rather than have to go left and then cross over, they can just go and cross over on a diagonal. So that's sort of the disruptive idea when we call it civic hack. And so thinking about different ways that we can make... uh, our streets and our cities more accessible to people by making just small changes that actually disrupt the whole way we think about like traditional concepts around the way cities are designed. So they literally are, uh, they literally are little hacks that design urban planners can make to make cities more livable. Correct. And it doesn't require like a whole systems change or a whole new policy. Sometimes it just means looking at a situation a little differently and thinking about who has access and why. What are some examples of the type of people that have come together to do this hacking? Who's at the table? 
usually we like to work with marginalized communities. Like that's uh, particularly where I like to focus on. Uh, I am from Mattapan, Massachusetts, for example, which is a historically underserved neighborhood in Boston. Uh, really rich history, but also that history also comes with redlining and segregation. And because of that, it played a large role in inspiring me to become a planner, but also to think about how we can use this concept of disruption and disrupting systems that were designed to keep people apart to bring them together. Mm -hmm. So we usually like to work on projects that are focused on marginalized communities. And we've done a lot of things here locally in the Boston area, but also have done things abroad. Um, like I had done some research in Japan, for example, after the Great East Earthquake and dealing with rural communities that were marginalized even more and isolated after the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster. I also have done projects in like Southwest Fresno, for example, which are largely Hmong and Mexican um, neighborhoods uh, that the city didn't really have a history engaging in. And so we like to sort of play that role in helping government agencies or social impact businesses that are trying to do good work, but really just don't know how, think about ways they can do it better. Before we delve further into your current leadership role, um, tell us a little bit more about what took you in this direction of working on democratic planning processes and art. Yeah, as I said, I, I grew up in Mattapan, which is a, a neighborhood of Boston, southern tip of Boston. It's a community that has changed dramatically over the years. It was at one point an Irish neighborhood and then a Jewish neighborhood, and now it is a largely black neighborhood mixed of different um members of the diaspora. Uh, we have African, Caribbean, and even within the Caribbean is Haitian, Jamaican, Trinidadian influences. And there's a growing, uh, the community is increasingly gentrified. But for a long time, the neighborhood was really disinvested in um, as a result of redlining, uh, which is the process in which banks will literally draw red lines on maps to try to seclude people of color, particularly African-Americans, from uh, access to other parts of cities. And they were supported by government policy. And that led to segregation. But as a result, a lot of our residents, myself included, we sort of learned how to take care of each other and look after each other. So even though the community has always had this negative stigma, you know, I've actually overheard strangers talking about things like, oh, if you go to Mattapan, you'll get shot on scene and things like that. And then I have to, then I have to interject and be like, hi, mm -hmm. I'm from Mattapan. Mm -hmm. I'm not dead. Mm -hmm. So, but it shaped me in a lot of ways, um, both the good and the bad. Um, and it's inspired me to really think about systems even before I knew how to name those terms to think about racial justice, social justice, and the ways in which cities are designed that either hurt or help people. And so I've always been engaged in artistic practice. I've been writing and drawing since I was like five years old. But when I started going into planning and public policy and working on campaigns through community organizing, which is really my entryway into planning and policy, I kind of kept all of those tracks separate. And so over time, I started doing a lot of activities, whether it was organizing or doing youth work, where I would try to incorporate sort of creative thinking, creative design, artistic practice into the process. And it could be anything from yeah, you know, working with young people, like, for example, when I worked at my town, where we taught young people neighborhood historical walking tours and then teach them how to 
do those tours, sit with their peers, to doing guerrilla theater with youth groups who are doing actions at City Hall, trying to get more funding for youth job programs. So there's a lot of different ways that we kind of started incorporating it. And so when I started Powerful Pathways, I wanted to bring the arts and urban planning work front and center. Some people would call that creative placemaking, but it's really something that's existed long before those terms existed. Um, And so I just wanted to just make that front and center. So that's what I did. Hmm. So um, you received your master's from the Department of Urban and Environmental Policy and Planning at Tufts University, by the way, as did I. We were introduced to you by one of our guests and a former professor of yours, Julian Ajaman. And we spoke with Julian about uh, the inherent challenges of achieving a democratic planning process within a municipal bureaucracy with its own agenda. You are an organizer for um, Go Boston 2030, a transportation planning process. So tell me about your experience working for, on a transportation plan for Boston. So Go Boston 2030 was a really interesting and experimental planning process that was different than any other planning process the city had ever engaged in. And in many ways, I'd like to think that the experience with Go Boston 2030 was so great, or at least so different, that it inspired Imagine Boston 2030, which was a citywide plan, the first plan the city had ever um, had in over 50 years, which then incorporated the results of Go Boss in 2030 and the many other um, visioning processes that were happening around the same time. Uh, so we were, um, the team I was a part of was a, a part of a group called Interaction Institute for Social Change. Uh, the Bar Foundation was funding a number of components of Go Boss in 2030, and we were contracted to facilitate the community engagement. And so we brought in a whole slew of partners and a whole slew of um, community-based organizations to sort of assist us in the outreach and getting the word out. We did some creative design charrettes at a variety of different venues from Go Hall to Chinatown. And we also did a question campaign, which was led by the then president of Interaction Institute, Caesar McDowell, who's a professor at MIT. And the question campaign really centered on this one single idea, which is we can't collect like a million ideas from the 600 plus thousand residents of Boston. So if we were to ask them a single question, that question would be, what do you see as the future of transportation in Boston? And so we did a, we collected thousands of these questions and uh, met together with a combination of individuals, both elected officials, city officials, community-based organizations, organizers across a variety of different fields, not just in transportation, but in environmental justice and in housing. And we began to break down and disseminate all of the different results uh, from uh, the question campaign. And that then informed other engagements that we did throughout the course of that year. So it was a very different approach to uh, engagement and to planning and visioning that was uh, involved a lot more creativity. There was a lot of resistance at first from the city to work with us until we started to show progress and then they were like, okay, you guys actually are legit. (laughs) So in addition to having charrettes in different neighborhoods, it sounds like the question campaign uh, was sort of like maybe block by block? I mean, you took, you didn't have to come to, sh- to a charrette in order to participate in the question campaign. 
yeah, we went to a few neighborhood events, but we also rented um, a glass truck which was literally a small truck with a glass casing shell. And we traveled the truck around to different neighborhoods and we invited folks to submit their questions right on the truck. And that was our way of being able to make sure we hit all of the neighborhoods. So tell us what came out of that uh, intensive process that you went through. Well, there's a lot of things. I would encourage you all to visit GoBoston2030.org for the the full report. Um, But one thing that we learned for sure is that Boston needs more mobility and mobility in every way that we think about it in terms of transportation options, but also the fact that having access to, to places and spaces means you have access to economic stability, to housing, to um, you know, job security and, and uh, amenities that you wouldn't normally have access to. And so that seemed to be the core of it. We also had a lot of engagement with the MBTA and MassUT, of course, as a result of that process, even though the city does not have any control over the T because it, Boston is the capital and the MBTA's core spider network is based in Boston. We were able to get a lot of input from writers about their experiencing use their experience using the transportation system. We also did a lot of research um, that around climate change that emerged out of the process. One big question that folks were asking is like if the seaport is being developed, you know, what's going to be the transportation mode to navigate the seaport and how do we do that at a time where sea levels are rising mm-hmm. and we predict 50 to 100 years from now it'll all be underwater. You know, mm-hmm. should we be preparing for, you know, mobility and transit options in the form of ferry boats and, and, you know, um, things of that nature. Like, how do we sort of think about climate while we're also thinking about transit? And so it also helped us to think about, uh, you know, uh, traffic congestion, uh, lowering diesel emissions, more opportunities for rapid transit like the Fairmount Indigo Line and many other interconnected elements that uh, affect transportation. Because you can't talk about transportation without talking about housing. You can't talk about housing without talking about jobs. You can't talk about jobs without talking about development and development access and markets. So all of that sort of ended up playing a role in, in the conversation. What's going to happen with the plan? Is it is something that you see the city has moved forward in, in enacting some of the elements? Go Boston 2030, the climate adaptation strategy um, that was being led by Greenovate and um, a few other plans, neighborhood plans that were happening at the at around that time all got folded into Imagine Boston 2030. So the city would argue that it's being implemented right now, that there have been certain changes. I've seen some small things already, like I've definitely seen more wayfinding and signage, which is also um, a part of transit options. Way, wayfinding? Can wayfinding you... and signage. What is, what is wayfinding? Wayfinding um, essentially is directional tools to help people get around from one place to another. Mm. One, Boston always has sort of this like reputation for like being hard to get around and there's no (laughs) signage for anything so we definitely have seen more Mm. signage around uh, the city but related to that is also a lot more public art um, Mm. and and an embracing of uh, arts and culture as being a part of that uh, integration into developing more signage and more functional art as I would call it that services uh, people getting around so often uh, urban planning does not fully engage everyone in the community. Mm-hmm. couple of questions. Why is that? <laughs> and uh, can you give us examples of innovative community processes for urban planning? 
there's so there's multi-layer to it. Number one, when we think about planning, the field itself was born um, about a hundred years ago out of the public health field. It was actually because cities were getting too dense, which I think is interesting that we're going back to that, where there's a lot of advocacy for more density, which basically means having more people crammed into a small space. The cities were getting too dense. Air quality was in and a lot of sort of uh, negative health effects were coming as a result of the way cities were being poorly designed. And so a push for having a professional track where you can focus on specifically designing cities so that they were healthy for all is really what was the driver behind the planning field. That being said, we were and we continue to be in a very divisive time in our country's history. And so unfortunately, a lot of the planning was also designed around keeping people separate. And as I said before, segregating communities. And there were a lot of like deep policies that really encouraged that. Uh, I would encourage folks to read um, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein, which Mm -hmm. talks a lot about that. There's also A People's History of New Boston, which really centers on the politics in the city and how that old boys club energy continues to permeate today. But the the reason I, I share that is because when we... When we say, who are we planning for? It's a critical question. Planning for whom? Who are we designing? Who are we visioning these communities are going to be for? And what are they then going to look like? And how do we challenge our blind spots to make sure that marginalized uh, populations are front and center so that we're not repeating the dangers of the past or the history of the past again. And it's very hard to do in a field that lacks diversity. The planning field Mm -hmm. is, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's, you know, majority middle-aged white men, middle class. And so when they're planning and they're thinking about planning, they're most likely thinking about themselves. What would I want when I, if I were to move into this community? What do I need? How do I see myself and people who look like me in these spaces? The ripple effect has led to a lot of things. Like we don't plan enough. We don't build enough for families with with many children. The trend is that people are having less and less children now, uh, not only because of financial constraints, but also because we're just not building cities around that. Most new units are two, three bedrooms is like a luxury. Cities are not really being designed for that. But there's also other issues too, like where we, what we call market forces. I mean, that's just a made up idea. That's not a real thing. I get really frustrated when people say things like, well, market forces are driving, you know, this, the rental rights to go up. It's not market forces, it's people. People are coming up with arbitrary rates to make profits and then everyone else is just going, moving on that. So we have to really challenge who we're thinking about when we're building and when we're planning uh, cities and why and really challenge the why. So I'm involved with some efforts to try to address that. Um, I've been part of a group that is comprised of the Mel King Institute and um, Mass Smart Growth Alliance. Uh, And we're a cohort of about, I want to say, 16 to 20 planners of color who have been meeting over the past couple years talking about this ongoing issue. Um, And so we've done some presentations. We presented at the Mass Association of Planning Directors Conference. We've we've presented at the Metropolitan Area Planning Council, which is the Greater Boston Regional Planning Agency. And we've also done talks in other spaces as well. We have been involved with some 
national conversations via policy link. And the whole point is to call light and attention to we can never plan effectively for everyone if the field is not reflective of everyone. We need to be more representative of the diversity. So the the, the idea is if we can try to address young people earlier to expose them to the planning field and encourage them to go into that path, particularly young people of color. We're trying to do engage with local colleges and universities. I know I've been having this discussion with folks at Tufts for some time now about how we really need to start doing some programming in the, at the high school level and hopefully get folks excited about planning if they knew what it was. Like I, for example, had actually gotten city planner on my high school car- uh, careers assessment form. Oh. And I remember throwing it away and not caring about it. Because one, I didn't know what a planner was. Mm. But two, uh, growing up in a Haitian-American household, your parents either want you to be a doctor, a Mm. lawyer, an engineer. So my parents were telling me for years that I should be a doctor. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. Like, I don't need to look at this. Mm. And I actually did an internship at Boston Med Center, and it changed my mind. I was like, actually, no, I don't want to be a doctor. Uh. But uh, it's it's a funny thing because I had no idea. I had no connection to the results of this assessment. Um, and so I, it was always in me to become a planner, but I didn't even embrace it until I was much older and later in life. Uh, but I just can't help but think about how many other young people have might have gone through that and could have been a planner but didn't get to be a planner because they didn't know what it was. Uh, I was fortunate that through the organizing work that I did, I eventually worked at places like Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative and then went on to work in local and state government that I was like, oh, actually, I'm doing planning. That That's what, that's exactly what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I made a professional career out of it. Uh, but it's a loss if we're not engaging young people of color in that. And and they're so essential to it. It's it, You have to have that kind of equitable engagement. And that's really what equity, that's really the first step to equity is having everybody at the table instead of on the table. Hmm. It, it used to be unpopular to move back to the city from the suburbs. Mm-hmm. And then, I don't mm-hmm. know when, uh, all of a sudden, people who were living in the suburbs started to value living in the city. And I remember, I think this was in the late 90s, people were assuming that Nobody was already living in the cities. All these people from the suburbs were moving into places like Roxbury or Dorchester or Mattapan. And planners were sort of reinforcing the idea that, well, there's nothing here, so we should just build for these people who are moving moving in. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases, that's what the leadership of municipalities want, right? right? They want these people with money to come in and spend their money and to pay their taxes. And so often planners are hired by the municipalities to do the planning Mm -hmm. with that pre-existing agenda. And how do you address that, that conflict? Yeah, um, it hasn't been an easy conversation with other planners, to be frank. Um, As I mentioned before, I'm not a big fan of over density. I actually predict that it's a cycle. Folks were moving out into the suburbs, then it started, transportation started becoming challenging. People don't want to do the commute anymore. They don't want to drive an hour and a half or some change to get to and from work anymore. But also recognizing that sprawl was an unhealthy practice, which is the practice of just continuing to expand and expand urban areas. America just started becoming one big mall. And that's a dying breed uh, because most things are digital. Mm-hmm. So it was becoming financially impractical 
to continue to to sprawl. And that was part of the motivation, I think, that uh, folks are returning to cities now. But I can guarantee you that everyone's going to come into the cities and then we're going to basically recreate a lot of the systemic inequities that we see where you're going to have some communities going to be entirely communities of color that are now moving out to the suburbs because they can't afford to mm-hmm. live in the cities anymore. Right. And you're going to have large affluent uh, spaces in the cities, but they're going to get bored very quickly mm-hmm. because the cultural diversity, the nuance, the artistic um, engagement, the the entertainment that comes with diversity is going to be lost. And then folks are going to decide they, they want to move back. And it's just going to be the cycle every 50 mm-hmm. to 60 years. Mm-hmm. That's my prediction. So given your your prior discussion about the a key focus of folks in your in your cohort of really ensuring like who is planning for and who is at the table how have they discussed addressing the fact that a lot of the people that might be hiring these planners are municipalities with a preordained agenda how do you handle that when you're actually being paid to do a work for a municipality with that perspective? It's a constant struggle, and that's why I don't work in government anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think we have to come to grips with reality that every institution has an agenda. And government agencies in particular will like to say that they're they're planning for all, they're building for all, they want to create inclusive, sustainable communities. They use all the great buzzwords, but at the end of the day, who they're catering to is always going to be at the forefront. There are folks right now in the city of Boston who, you know, get upset with me because I'm hypercritical of the way in which development is taking place, not just in Boston, but in the surrounding communities. Like we're experiencing displacement crises right now as we speak. And we're building without any clear what feels to me like without a clear roadmap, like we're just building for building's sake. Mm-hmm. And this agenda around we need more housing, we need more housing. Again, who do we need more housing for and mm-hmm. why? Because the people who live here currently are being pressured. Their rents are going up. Their cost of living is going up, but their wages are going down. And so it's very hard for people to stay in the city right now. And if you can stay in the city, it's because you have a certain amount of privilege and a certain amount of access that others don't. And we have to come to grips with that reality. Mm -hmm. Uh, You were the founder, as we mentioned earlier, of Powerful Pathways. And we'd love to hear a little bit about why you created the organization and what it was like to get it off the ground. Mm. I had been doing consulting kind of freelance for several years and I was meeting with a a couple friends of mine over the course of a short period of time, and we were all sort of talking about how we were frustrated in our respective organizations, be it whether we worked in government or whether we worked for a nonprofit. And we wanted to create a, a space for us to do the kind of work that we wanted to do on our terms. And so I said, you know, why don't we just do that? Let's just start our own kind of um, nonprofit organization. And as we were talking about ways to fund this work, because the reality is, is that doing radical organizing, radical social justice work, that's all about like pushing the limits of systems change, doing civic hacks. That's not really well funded. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Funders are, you know, bought into the system. um, And so if you're saying your work is trying to challenge the system, they're likely to not fund you. So we decided to take a different approach where we would take on consulting gigs and then put 
a certain percentage of the proceeds from those consulting gigs to fund our community initiatives. And that's how we sort of got around, got away with, you know, getting to what, what the work that we wanted to do. But it's kind of been a ragtag uh, team, as I like to say. <laughs> and the way we work is we pull in uh, associates, which are basically freelance consultants, depending on the project. So if we're doing a project working on watershed analysis, then I'll pull in someone with that background experience to work on a project for that short term. Or if we're doing a community planning process in a certain neighborhood, I'll pull in someone from that community to work on that project. And that's how we sort of maintain equity but and um, fair representation, but also um, allow us the flexibility to do this work and still have to do our full-time jobs. <laughs> yeah, that that's a unique structure, and it's sort of like a quasi-for-profit, non-profit, obviously. Mm-hmm. Given your core value of democracy, and you just highlighted that, mm-hmm. how are decisions made, and in, in how do you go about doing that given your quote-unquote ragtag team? Yeah, so we're actually trying to move into a co-op model right now. We're exploring the methods to become fully co-op, to be even more closer to a cooperative economic structure. And basically, when opportunities arise, I'll get a call. um, It might be an RFP that either someone contacted me to work on or that I heard about. And I'll just put out a call to uh, the associates and say, hey, folks, this is the timeline. This is the project. Anyone interested and whoever responds, then we go from there. We also have an advisory board um, made up of artists, planners, and designers who sort of help us think about strategic direction. So we try to keep it very community-oriented. Hmm. And and you are coaching uh, you know, new leaders to be involved in more democratic processes. So what are the key skills, leadership skills, that are necessary mm-hmm. to sort of build skills for um, more democratic processes? Yeah, that's a tough one. Because I think if you were to ask anyone else on my team, they might give you a different answer. Because <laughs> I don't think we have a shared definition for it. But to me, some of the, I'd say, the tenets of beginning a democratic process is one, opening up decision making. And so it doesn't mean that we have to decide as a group on everything, like, what are we going to eat today? Let's take a vote, you know. But it does mean that we're very clear about designated roles you know, giving people the opportunity to voice what role that they want. And so every once in a while, we'll hold meetings with our associates and we'll say, okay, so what role do you want to play in this process going forward? Sometimes folks are like, hey, I'm, I, I'm available, so I want to be more involved in projects. Other times they're like, you know, just keep me posted and I'll let you know how I can plug in. And so offering that flexibility um, for where people can exert their leadership is really important. I would also say education teaching about different methods of practice and approaches. One of the things that we do through Power Pathways is that we do a lot of trainings um, with planners. And so uh, we have a whole toolkit of helping planners think more equitably about processes from scoping, envisioning the project to all the way to methods to engage with communities and um, organ- community-based organizations. Um, and so that is a, a necessary part of the process is because we can only do what we know and we only know what we know. So opening the opportunities for people by opening their viewpoints around strategies and approaches I think is important. And the other thing I would say is just valuing everyone's voice equally. 
I try really hard to do that, especially because I'm in the leadership position as the the principal and the, sort of the manager of the organization. You know, I really want to make sure that folks' voices are heard and that their ideas are being incorporated. So creating space for that. And in some cases, setting up processes, uh, you know, sort of more traditional processes like for voting and for uh, decision making as well. What were some, a couple of the, the biggest challenges that you faced in any of the takeaways that, that you had from that? Well, we don't have a lot of time for that, so goodbye, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh my gosh, the challenges. I mean, there's some that are more existential and then some that are more uh, practical. Some of the existential ones, or as I alluded to about education and just learning different models and approaches, I think that can be hard for individuals who are very used to doing things a certain way and then asking them to think outside of their comfort zones to try different engagements. I found um, not just, you know, within the Powerful Pathways umbrella, but through all the other types of environment spaces I've been are hard for people. It's just very hard to embrace change. And that for them is a form of change. So there's a little bit of resistance there. So that's always challenging. I think trying to do work um, like running a grassroots nonprofit led by a woman of color in itself was just really hard. Um, I mentioned before about the difficulty of getting funding. It just it pushes us to have to be creative and and think outside of our boundaries because uh, there's just a lot of bias and prejudice against organizations, and even more so when you're trying to do really radical work that's built on challenging systems. Um, and and systems change for people who have benefited from those systems. You know, they don't want to see that change. And I think on a more practical level, it's just a matter of capacity. As it, Because we are part-time slash hustle-based group and because of the structural challenges that I named before, we can't do this work full-time. Like, I would love to be able to do this work full-time. Given your, your art background and the connection between art and leadership from your perspective, have you been able to incorporate your artistic side into your organization's practices at all? Definitely. I mean, that was a core goal because I felt like I couldn't do that in other roles that I've been, I've been in. Um, I wanted to put my artistic practice front and center. And so we're starting to see some fruits to, the, to those labors. So for example, I founded Mattapan Open Streets Open Studios, which is an initiative, a creative placing initiative, but also a neighborhood revitalization initiative um, in Mattapan, where I grew up. And the for those who aren't familiar with the concept of open studios, it's uh, actually started here in Somerville. Um, I think Somerville is the first city to start open studios like 30 years ago. But the idea is to literally open up artist galleries and so that it promotes more foot traffic in a community. It gets people to meet artists and, and purchase and sell artist work, thus driving the local creative economy. Well, we never actually had one in Mattapan because Mattapan has no galleries, even though we have mm. a lot of artists who live in a neighborhood. We don't have any commercial art space um, in Mattapan currently. And so what I decided to do, again, thinking outside of the box, is partnering with local businesses and community mm. organizations to do pop-up art spaces. Mm. And then we took it a step further by organizing arts and crafts fairs and, and bazaars, doing public art projects that are community-led. And so we've done a series of workshops where, res- where we've asked residents to identify key spaces and places in the community that they would love to do public art installations. And we're looking to 
begin to launch those projects. We actually have a burgeoning partnership with the city of Boston to do um, some electric boxes, which we had pushed to do mm. a couple years ago. We had moved to do a banner initiative, which we were able to finish last year. So there's some progress where we're doing a lot of things, but the core of it is that it's community involved and that the voice of, and the culture of the community is reflected in the projects. The network that you created of of artists of color? Ah, yes, Boston's Black and Brown Creatives. I started Boston Black and Brown Creatives uh, actually before I founded Powerful Pathways because I was um, concerned about the lack of resources for artists of color and the lack of a virtual space for artists of color to to speak and address those resources. So it started as just a Facebook group and we've since grown to 850 members. Um, the only requirements are you have to be from the Boston area, live in the Boston area, actually, that you're of color and that you practice some kind of creative medium. And uh, a few years ago, we began to organize networking events and uh, mixers to create opportunities for artists of color to meet and, and share resources in person. So it's been going well, and we're hoping to do a lot more activities and if we can get the fundraising right, I'm looking to launch artist mini grant program so mm-hmm. that we can do micro funds for artists looking to do social practice projects. Mm. Wonderful. How would people get in touch with you if they're interested? So to get in touch with me, you can um, go to our website, PowerfulPathways.org. You can also check out Mattapan Open Streets Open Studios at MattapanOpenStudios.com. And if you are an artist of color and you'd love to connect with us, you can find us on Facebook. You just have to answer the criteria questions in order to be admitted. Um, And if you want to get in touch with me, we could always use more um, donations. We could always use um, some support if you're a designer, a planner, an artist, or any other kind of creative professional or just someone who cares about social justice. Feel free to get in touch, and we'll definitely find a way to, to connect you to the work. Great. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the Be Change podcast. Visit BeChange.net for show notes, resources, and additional episodes. Mm-hmm.